Good afternoon. We're here on Lexington Community Radio with Hot Water Cornbread Kentucky Food Radio. We hope it doesn't give you indigestion <laughs> because sometimes, you know, yeah, you just got to say what you got to say. <laughs> We're here every week with your hosts, Rona Roberts and Weta Michael. Hi, Rona. Hi, Weta. Hi, Chris. And hi, Lily Brislin, hi, our special guest. Lily, Executive Director of the Food Connection at the University of Kentucky. We'll introduce you more intensively um, a little bit later, but we like to let people know you're here, especially if you want to play our opening game. Oh, I love games. All right. <laughs> um, should, we, should we mention what day this is before we play our opening game? Yes. We, I think that this is your thing. To, <laughs> this is yours to announce. Yes. Today is National Bourbon Day. Yahoo! Woohoo! And it actually begins the uh, Bourbon Affair, which is this great, fantastic celebration of bourbon that goes from Louisville all the way down the Bourbon Trail into Lexington. Uh, but today is National Bourbon Day. I can't think of any way that you could celebrate that. I think uh, um, Governor some... Bevan needs to declare this a state holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. This, you know, somehow or other, this gives, there's a little more gravitas to National Bourbon Day than there was to National Donut Day a couple weeks ago, which got all kinds of attention. I was like, nah. Yeah, I don't really care about donuts that much. I will say bourbon has made a significant difference in the lives of the people of this commonwealth yes. over the last 212 years, yes. roughly. Yes. So not all of it positive. Did you know that but my, a lot of it lately very positive? Did you know my great grandfather spent six months in the federal prison in London, Kentucky, for for making um, uh, no, what I, I, didn't I know doubt it was bourbon. <laughs> he made he made moonshine. I'm sure. I doubt if he aged it. You are a descendant of a moonshine. I am. He didn't want to pay taxes. He thought oh. that, he thought that he should not have to pay taxes on what he made himself from his own corn. Well, and, I and for that he went to, that he went to the pokey. <laughs> He went so, to the book. Yes, he where did. he definitely was not going to be able to pay any taxes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, our game, our opening, our opening—I don't know if it's a game, but our opening um, gambit. Let's yes. put it that way. Conversation starter. Yes, is that we ask each other what was the best bite or sip you had this week? Oh, and it can be. Um, anything it can be so, so we and chris are exposed to some very elaborate food i'm usually exposed to my garden or the street where i find mulberries um but it, and our guests you know, have their own th so yeah. anyway so we never make the guests start first unless she just really wants to um i wonder if chris would start you i bet he's got something great to say on national <laughs> bourbon day yeah well, i didn't drink any bourbon yeah but um, <laughs> yet <laughs> we did have a lovely rosé last night since it is rosé season, getting to be rosé season. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a um, a rosé of Gamay Beaujolais. Hmm. So, you know, Beaujolais, the red wine, is very fruity, and um, so it makes a great rosé. Lots of fruit, a little bit of acidity, lively. It was nice. Mm -hmm. Very good. Enjoyed it very much. Mm -hmm. Yes. I just love rosés, but I'm, and I know, you know, if we were grown-ups, we'd drink them all year long, I'm told, but yeah. as not as probably not a grown-up, they just seem so wonderful in hot weather. In the summer is mm -hmm. when you crave it. Mm -hmm. um, I yes, loved that. Did. I got to, ha I have to, got to share in that taste, so it's very, and then we drank that wine at Middle Fork, 
restaurant here oh. in uh, Lexington. It was nice. We took our business partner, Roger, out for a little dinner. And we had there, uh, all the food was quite good. I mean, and I really like that place. I feel comfortable there. And But one of the dishes I thought was a real standout was the, they called it beef brisket crudo. It's just a steak tartare huh. in my book. But I love steak tartare. Oh. And I thought it was really well done. And then on It Sun- was well done. It was well done. I <laughs> <laughs> thought it was delicious. Uh, the whole dinner was delicious. On Sunday night, I made homemade shrimp and gelatos, and they turned out they turned out good. Willa oh, is at music yum. camp, so Chris and I are Chris and I are ha- having a wonderful week together. <laughs> Not that we don't love having Willa, or we do. We love our adore our daughter, but it's you're having been, anticipatory emptiness. You get just a week or two here and there before the, in the, the what five years before she leaves home. Yeah, now that I'll probably be more of a basket case for, but right now a week uh, a week away at music camp is kind of a really nice nice thing. Yeah. Yep. Do you what want... about you, Miss Lillian? I spent most of last week in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, she's going to have 10 million good bites. I know. I know. Well, we'll just give you the rest of the show. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. And the Commerce Lexington trip, their leadership trip, part one of the breakout sessions, uh, Sandy Cannon of Community Ventures organized. She's like, I want to talk local food economies. Uh, you got to tell me where to go because some of my dissertation research is there in Charleston. Um, so I went on the trip, but we're talking about what I ate. And two things that I can't help but share. One is... Every time I go to Charleston or anywhere with oysters, I have to get grilled oysters. And there's a place called Leon's yeah. that has char-grilled oysters, a little garlic butter, a little bit of parmesan. And I thought I didn't like oysters. I mean, I'll eat them raw, but but as a you know, I was raised mostly in Wisconsin, so like seafood is kind of it takes some getting used to. Yeah, but grilled, man. So good. Whole, it's like the best of the rawness with like the briny and the really fresh flavor, but the textures change just enough to make it delightful. And then I had for the first time... Yeah, my, my mouth is oh, watering. No. I'm actually getting a little thriller now. Really. <laughs> we're, in, we're in a room of oyster. Like, it's in my number three, my first three foods. So yes, my, really. And two different times, one at Edmunds Oast and one at Cypress, different variations on pickled shrimp. Mm, mm, I love pickled shrimp. I had never had and then had it twice and it was delightful. And the second time at Cypress, it was kind of like a celery caraway broth that it was in yeah it was cold or warm cold it's cold Cold. it was room it was Mm -hmm. not cold cold but Mm -hmm. yeah it was not warmed lovely Mm. and it's shrimp season right it's not oyster season but it is we have a lot of beautiful shrimp coming in right now yeah from kelly i believe that's right what about you miss rona um let's see i had i made a soup Mm. i'm not very good at soup making um but we had guests and i made i i got out i thought i could make the classic vichyssoise has an S on it, everybody. Yes. Miss Edna Porter told me that in seventh grade after <laughs> she came home from the Congo where she'd been a French teacher and French speaker, vichyssoise. Um, I, but I, I, had, I didn't have quite enough of a lot of things, so I didn't have quite enough potato and so forth. It's really simple. I'll post the recipe mm. um, on the Facebook page. But what ended up happening is that I used a lot of different things in addition to the beautiful young leeks from blue moon garlic i used our own garlic scapes i used some shallot scapes from our garden mm. uh, a lot of things and all very very mild and i had i didn't have enough cream so i used buttermilk and it was still really really good it was cold on a hot night and mm. we liked it so that was my 
that stood out. Sounds for me. like a lovely potage. A potage, <laughs> yes, it was a potage. Um, kind of Americanized version of, uh, of, you know, potato onion soup. <laughs> yes. Well, that sounds uh, yummy. Actually, it's funny. I'm putting that on the menu this week. So my mind was working. Along, it must have been informed, but you must have sent me that message. <laughs> I woke up this morning going, "What are we going to do for soup?" Ah, fishy squaws. Yes. Um, should we take a quick station identification and come back and talk to Lillian Breslin yes. about the food it, connection in detail? In detail. Yes. Radio Comunitaria Lexington is apoyada por el Departamento de Salud del Condado de Lexington Fayette. El Departamento de Salud es un líder reconocido en la promoción de la salud, protección de la salud, cuidado personal y la prevención de enfermedades. Están localizados en 650 Newton Pike y puede ser alcanzado al número 859-252-2371. Para obtener más información, visite LexingtonHealthDepartment.org. Radio Comunitaria Lexington reconoce el Departamento de Salud como uno de nuestros socios comunitarios de fundación. You must have thrown a thousand pitches teaching him to hit a home run. Spent countless Saturdays running routes so he could learn to hit an open receiver. Endless afternoons teaching him how to hit the three-pointer. But how much time have you spent teaching him? what not to hit. Teaching boys that all violence against women is wrong is one of the most important things a man can do. Learn how to start the conversation at teachearly.org. Brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the Ad Council. In a small shack in Kentucky I've lived most of my life And I do things my own way I don't take no one's advice I'm a simple man, an honest man I get along just fine When times are tough I got three things that help me every time Got guns and bourbon You'll see me through it all The Lord above, the rifle I love The Sirenash alcohol strength, they give me pride, they make right all that's wrong. Got guns and bourbon, I worship all day long. One's in my heart, one's in my hands, one's in this. Hi again, everyone. I'm Rona Roberts here with you on Hot Water Cornbread, Kentucky Food Radio from Lexington Community Radio. I'm here with my co-host, Chris Michael, Weta Michael, and our spectacular guest, Lily Breslin. Lillian Breslin, I will introduce you now, um, although I'm sure this is not going to do justice to the whole Lily, but <laughs> she is the first executive director of the University of Kentucky's Food Connection, an academic center devoted to fostering a vibrant and sustainable food and farm system for Kentucky through education, outreach, and research. Lillian holds a Master of Science in Agriculture, that's rural sociology version of agriculture, from UK and is now writing her dissertation about three food hubs in the southeastern United States. So we're going to want to talk about 
I don't know if we want to talk about each of those food hubs, but we want to talk about food hubs. I want to talk about Uh, all of it. (laughs) Each one. Her past professional work was in economic and food system development with nonprofit organizations in Ohio, Oregon, and Ecuador. She also currently sits on the board of directors of the American Independent Business Alliance, a national organization serving affiliate by local initiatives. They have the Bali, is Bali their initiative, B-A-L-L-E? Bali is a separate organization. Okay. Sister organization. A sister organization. Lily and her partner Greg live in downtown Lexington with their dog, best name ever, Crowder P. And they're They're enjoying enjoying is not even in quotes in this in this it's they're enjoying a historic house do it yourself renovation adventure. So welcome Lily. Thank you so much for having me. We want you, if you are willing, to bring us up to to now a little bit with a, a sketch of your background, where you started out, and where are you ha- from? Where are oh. you from? How'd you how'd you get into food? Um, you know, why are walk you us here? Th- walk us along. <laughs> how did you get here? I have to say that's a very typical Kentuckian response to me. <laughs> I, it's normally within five minutes of meeting a Kentuckian. They, where are you from? You look different yeah. from us. Where it's, are you from? It's complicated. <laughs> or they hear me say the word, I get this, if if I say roof, then I'm outed. I'm done. <laughs> no, I'm not from here. So That's right. my family, we're upper Midwesterners, uh, was born in Chicago, to the south side Chicago people, but then grew up mostly in Wisconsin. And my parents, I did high school and my parents still live in southern Michigan. So small town, rural upbringing. Uh, my parents' house looks out on 80 acres of corn and beans, nice. corn or beans, depending on the year. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and then I went to college in Beloit, Wisconsin, Beloit College. It's a mm-hmm. tiny Lavard school. Mm-hmm. I say it's like center for Kentucky people. It's uh-huh. not like center college. And believe it or not, I have a theater degree. Um, oh, that surprises me. That's an interesting, <laughs> I like, see, this is the part of the show I like because you get to learn the person behind the title. Yeah. Theater degree. Yes, ma'am. Uh, acting, directing. Because in a classic liberal arts education, you know, I had broad breadth of things. I did a lot of political science stuff, but loved acting and directing. But um, my junior year, between my junior and senior year of college, I was working at Fizz Plant and uh, bartending and working at a, doing a show, doing a, a play. And I hated Fizz Plant because they kept making me use the weed whacker. And if there is one thing I won't do anymore in this life, it is operate a weed whacker. They are demons on sticks they're terrible <laughs> and i was at the bar looking through the newspaper like there's got to be some other way to to fund myself and there was honestly old school classified ad farm workers wanted for organic farm i was like why not i've never set foot on a farm well, i've set you foot thought, on a farm you, i think you did you have this idea that it would be a weed whacker free zone yes <laughs> exactly <laughs> i was like that's got to be the opposite of this plan um and that was really my first serious foray into anything agriculturally related how old were you I would have been just turned 21, um, or I turned 21 probably while I was working on the farm. One of life's big forks. Yeah, and nice. it was amazing, and I happened to be reading Grapes of Wrath at the same time, which I also think <laughs> was, like, really fortuitous, where I was like, this is, this is, um, this is it. And so after graduation, I got a job as a VISTA volunteer with Rural Action in Athens, Ohio, which is a longstanding kind of amazing organization, And I asked him why he hired me. And he said, honestly, you were the only one with any farm experience. So it was for a sustainable agriculture program. And I was like, you know, it was like, and I'm such a supporter of 
AmeriCorps because that job mm-hmm. and then later what brought me to Oregon was doing a different AmeriCorps job um, doing low-income entrepreneurship development mm-hmm. was a way for someone with a theater degree and very little practical experience like a lot of college graduates these days to right. do a really exciting work that's really cutting edge and to build my portfolio so we're, we're going to celebrate AmeriCorps on July 5. Uh-huh. We and Chris are going to be celebrating being away but um <laughs> Grace Carson, who's oh, Grace. Uh, Grace Carson Wintermeyer, yeah, uh, who is one of this year's America, fabulous AmeriCorps. She's incredible uh, and an incredibly talented artist. If you didn't know, I know. So that's another thing. So I'm beginning to. Th- I used to think medicine and music went together. Now I'm starting to think it's it's organic farming and and making. Various forms of the performance of, art, yeah, culture of agriculture. Uh, but anyway, Grace will be here, and I think uh, is bringing another vista, but we don't know yet for sure. But okay. oh, I so agree. I so agree. Mm-hmm. So that's. Were you so how did you get to Kentucky? <laughs> I was uh, the program manager for that same micro entrepreneurship program, and realized that I wanted. I told them I was like I got kind of thrust into running that program. And I said, look, I don't know anything about entrepreneurship, really. I know a little bit about food systems, and I like it a lot. And if we're doing rural economic development and we're doing entrepreneurship, farmers are entrepreneurs, period. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And so we started a buy local campaign, and we included farms in Mm. that and did a a lot of farm tours and different work like that. And I realized I needed some more, um, a broader skill set for the sort of work. So research-based, qualitative methods. I just figured, like, I'd reached the end of the fake it till you make it rope. You know, (laughs) I'd been doing it for a while, and I just needed some more depth to my understanding of, like, how systems work, the nature of economic development, and how that intersects in agriculture. So was looking for a graduate program that would let me study that and settled. I was like, planning? No, it's not. I don't know. And then found rural sociology in Kentucky had a, a strong program here and always and that's wonderful. so neat so you came here to get your master's yep and now we sucked her into the kentucky way of life i have drank you the drank, kool-aid, she the, drank bourbon the kentucky kool-aid. bourbon kool-aid and she's staying <laughs> yeah we're that's here. awesome yeah oh well and so lily i think i first knew about you right before you became this interesting thing the first ever director of the brand new food connection when you were working, you were doing research on um, on a food hub that has closed. It was not a food hub, exactly. Grass, what was Grass Grasshoppers? Was definitely a was food a food hub. hub? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then next thing I know, here's and I thought that when I read this study, I actually did read it. I thought it was one of the most just complete, fine, carefully done pieces of work that I had read. That means and Rona sent it you. to me. I probably did. You, did. you sent it to me and Becca, and yeah, that's what. Because there are people in this room that have talked about food hubs and For kind of years. been co- thinking about constructing. And decided them against time. doing one yeah, after reading that study. Yeah. yeah, that's both heartening and it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> no, that, no, that it means, just means that you have to do something that takes into account all the issues. Yeah. yeah, right. Well, thank you so much for saying that. It was definitely uh, a very thoughtful and careful piece of work putting that report together. Right. So, Grasshoppers was operated for about seven years in Louisville mm-hmm. and I had been putting together this dissertation proposal to look at food hubs and their and their impact on family farms. That's really that's my main interest is how is it working for mid sized farms. Mm-hmm. But was meeting with my dissertation committee the week that Grasshopper sent out the email to everyone saying we're closing our doors in three days. Mm-hmm. It's been nice knowing you mm-hmm. and I met with my committee, I was like I don't, what am I, that, what am I going to do this to me? (laughs) And, um, they were like, oh my gosh, you should, you should do, you should still do it. There's so much to be learned from this. And, um, 
teamed up with Lee Meyer and Tim Woods over in mm-hmm. AggieCon to get some economists on board, and we did a series of interviews and went through a lot of old documents. But the thing that struck me in putting that study together was the number of people who teared up or straight up cried when we were doing these interviews and the, just the amount of heart and soul and heartbreak that was coming out in the story of how hard everyone involved in that place, the farmers, worked. the workers, the leaders, yeah, just work, tried to make it work, tried mm-hmm. to figure it out. Um, well, they forged tried to a lot on. of incredible mm-hmm. new territory. Oh. I mean, yeah. I mean, they were really. really out in the wilderness as far as mm-hmm. figuring out a model. I think in the report, we said something like they had to build the foundations on which their whole enterprise was supposed to rest. Like no one had done this foundational foundational work. Um, And so, and just so in writing the report, having those experiences in my mind, like those people are going to read this and how do we tell the story Mm -hmm. in a way that does justice. Mm -hmm. You did a great job. Yes, you did. And, and so did, so how, how did that finishing that and then starting the food connection, how did that all work? How did, what was the timing? And- so that, we, let me see. That what year is it? It's two, 2016 now. Okay, so over the course of 2014, did those interviews and wrote up the report. And then for the, for that's my Midwestern again, for the first three months of 2015, I was doing my other field work. So in New Orleans and Charleston, South Carolina, looking at those two food hubs in the process of doing this very truncated field work, because I was self-funding it, I didn't have any grants or anything, um, had just thrown my hat in the ring for this food connection job, because the job posting came up, and someone forwarded it to me and said, you should really apply for this. And I thought, this is my dream job. There's, yeah. if, you, if you asked me to write down, if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? I would have written that job description. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the food connection is? So it's a, it's a kind of hybrid... I think of it as an applied academic center. So we are bureaucratically housed within the College of Agriculture at UK, but we mm-hmm. serve the whole campus community and have sort of both an inward-facing and community-facing aspect to our work. So we do, it's, um, our existence is thanks to the contract between U- University of Kentucky and Aramark or UK Yeah, Dining. so Aramark had to... Fund a food institute mm-hmm. mission and purview to be determined in the contract to the, you know x amount of dollars for the length of the contract. So we have guaranteed funding for the fifteen years of the contract, and um, and the food I didn't the food that institute part. is in fact called the food, food connection. the food connection. So this is all an outgrowth of the Aramark and UK contract and an outgrowth of the incredible um i think support and feedback and passion of the kentucky community who when the decision to outsource was happening said we must maintain our commitment to our farm economy we must continue this good work of local food and so to everyone who did that work thank you for my job (laughs) and food connection is housed in a beautiful kitchen that's in the 90 which yeah. is a new food service building at in the center of University of Kentucky across from you, fr- across from King Library. Mm-hmm. And you said it was both inward facing and outward facing. Yeah. What does that mean? So we for for the campus community we do we say educational enrichment. So we don't right as of now we're not teaching our own classes, but we look to um, engage and interact with existing curriculum and faculty to uh, for example, the, we, uh, we have student opportunity grants for faculty or students to do research or work, and an anthropology class developed this very cool curriculum, a course, on ancient Appalachian foodways. They did an archaeology dig and used some microscopes to look at what wow. was in the dig to see what wow. they had eaten and found, did you all know this? Um, 
quinopods. So a quinoa relative is indigenous or was indigenous to kind of prehistoric Appalachia. And they found the seeds and they were talking about maybe they could grow them out, which is a totally different project. But I was like, <gasps> mind blown. <laughs> really? Mind completely blown. And when so, did we say, and what, what time frame? I, I have no idea. Oh, okay. But, but before the... Um, so white settlement, for yeah, example. Pre, pre, yeah, pre-Columbian, for sure. Yeah. But then, so they, they um, we helped fund the development of that curriculum and the equipment they needed. But then at the end of the year, their students came in and fixed dishes based on some of the foodstuffs that they'd found in there. So, oh, yeah. And there was some substituting, like they didn't have uh, heart of palm or I don't know, and they were mm-hmm. doing corn things. But it was the students came into the kitchen to actually demonstrate to each other and eat and yeah. share this meal. and. So we do and, things like that. And also, part so part of your work is to help students at UK learn more about food, its history, its culture, how it impacts their lives and the lives of people that did live here and the lives of people who will live here. That's a good way to put it, yeah. And then part of your work, though, is involved in how local foods make it into the University of Kentucky food stream. Yes. Is that right? So there, as many people know, there's a... There's a commitment by UK Dining, which is Aramark, to source a certain percentage of every year's uh, ingredients from either Kentucky Proud sources or local sources. And Mm -hmm. those definitions are always evolving or, you know, they are what they are. But um, there is a really unique opportunity there in having a committed, stable institutional buyer with a mandate to do this work. Um, Then we as the Food Connection, uh, we've been doing a lot of work and some various studies to look at, okay, what are the supply chain, the logistic, the regulatory challenges to having this massive dining service provider interface with a very scrappy grassroots food system? There's Mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways that those are difficult to articulate with each other. Right. Um, So we spent most of our outreach and research work is focused on how do we take this opportunity of a committed buyer to help work out the kinks and handhold producers or talk directly with distributors and figure out those kind of wicked problems around the supply chain. Can we, I think we should talk about that somewhat extensively after we take a little break. But before we take a little break, I wanted to ask if there's any, uh, back to the food hub topic for a yes. minute, if there's anything that you have learned so far from your three locations that would maybe um, save the next people who try to start a food hub uh, or would have helped grasshoppers. Um, so what, what do we know about food? Are, are food hubs even good ideas? Yes. Depending, probably. Yeah. So this is, you're asking someone. <laughs> I love the look I got. In the throes, <laughs> I'm in the throes of trying to write a dissertation on this. And so it's like, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm asking you for yeah. the one second. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Here's, here's what I'm really chewing on now. And I'll try to say it in a coherent way. So Grow Food Carolina in South Carolina is, by many accounts, a very successful food hub. And they are actually a nonprofit food hub that's based within the Coastal Conservation League, which is a nonprofit environmental protection in a lot of ways agency. Hmm. And I keep trying to think of they their origins and grasshoppers' origins in a lot of ways are similar, similar models and things. And what's the difference? Why is, why is Grow Food thriving where grasshoppers really struggle and ultimately close? And I, I come back to... Um, a quote at a food hub conference uh, a few years ago where this producer was up there, some food hub leader, and said, well, the thing is, when you know one food hub, you know one food hub. And it's funny to say, like, mm. they're all unique. Mm. They're very special and adaptive. But I think that's, I keep coming back to it in that a food hub is a blanket buzzword term for these very complicated, very contextually uh, adapted solutions to community-based 
problems or challenges. Where in, for Charleston, the problem was we are losing the low country coastal plain at an alarming rate to urban development. We've done what we can for farmland trust sort of like easements or where do you, what do you, American farmland trust stuff where you put yeah, the conservation. conservation easements or mm-hmm. we've done that with the big plantation landowners. But if we're going to continue this work, we have to address the fact that these are fundamentally rural lands and agrarian communities are working lands. They're farming lands. And if we don't have viable livelihoods for farmers, then we don't have viable lands. We don't have working lands. And then we're not growing food. And so when mm-hmm. someone comes to them and says, I, you could all your money problems could go away if you just sell me this land for development. We need to provide them with a viable alternative for their future because they're hungry for it. Mm-hmm. And it sounds our, like Woodford County, Kentucky, to me. Right, and so there's a lot of similarities yeah. there. So the solution of the food hub, the way that Grow Food is developed, and the way its operations work, are always about solving that problem by dis- mm-hmm. and the solution is wholesale distribution of regionally sourced produce. Um, so That's I the think, solution. That, yeah. that, there's a common solution. And different ways of getting at it, yeah. Yeah. And so how does the problem inform a very specific and parsimonious set of services, right? The very, really nailing in, not being everything to everyone, not doing all the services that everybody could ever want, but really being a successful model of what you are is the help Mm -hmm. to solve a problem that you've all agreed on. Hmm. Well, (laughs) that's my best, that's my best way of kind of condensing that thinking. My head's spinning now, so we'll just say this for a minute, then we're going to come back and talk more. This is WLXL, uh, Lexington Community Radio, 97.5. You're listening to Hot Water Cornbread. This is Weta Michael. We're here with Rona Roberts and Chris Michael, and our guest today is Lillian Breslin. We're going to take a quick music break and come right back to the discussion. You are listening to WLXL, 95.7, Lexington Community Radio. Tómese un minuto para averiguar si podría tener prediabetes. Visite podriatenerprediabetes.org. Pero seguramente no lo va a hacer porque hay mil excusas. Los niños, el trabajo, no tiene tiempo. Pero no se preocupe, estar ocupado previene la prediabetes. <risa> claro que no, cualquiera puede padecer prediabetes, hasta los más ocupados. Visite podriatenerprediabetes.org. No hay excusas, la prediabetes es reversible. Presentado por el Ad Council y sus socios de la campaña educativa sobre la prediabetes. Hi, we're back. Hot Water Cornbread, Kentucky Food Radio. Weta Michael, Chris Michael, Rona Roberts. We're here with Lily Brislin, who is, um, she probably knows more about this elusive thing called a food hub um, than anyone else on the planet right now because she's going to have to stand up in front of a group of people and defend every every word that she says about <laughs> it pretty soon so that we'll be able to call her Dr. Lillian Brisbane. Um, and so she's also she also directs the, the Food Connection at UK. She's the first director. And that entity um, 
champions, conducts, supports research. Recently, the um, recently the Food Connection released. Is that am I saying it right when I say the Food Connection released this research? Is it you? Yeah, yeah. You own the research. Yes. Um, and it looks like I did not bring the cover page, but this is a study about first processed produce. Yes. And I did not know what that term meant, although I realized that I've been hearing about it from Wee to Michael for seven or eight years. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Lily, could you tell us about this study, what you learned? Tell us what, first of all, what you were looking for and then what you learned. Yeah. So the, this study was sponsored by uh, NOLI CDC in partnership with Bluegrass Farm to Table via their Knight Foundation funding. So let's just interrupt for one second and say NOLI is the North Limestone Community Development Corporation. Yes. So it's an urban um, redevelopment corporation in Lexington, and it's a, it's a non-profit entity. And then the the Bluegrass Farm to Table, Farm to Table so which is our kind of our food coordinator funded mostly by um, the local urban county government and by... Um, Oh, what is the Frankfurt money called? I Governor's want to say Office tobacco money. But <laughs> um, yeah. So they had written a Knight Foundation grant to look at opportunities for the former Lextran, mm-hmm. former bus depot. Right, the deep I bus guess. depot. And there had been an idea for maybe we need a produce processor. Um, and we'd also been hearing from Community Ventures via Sandy Cannon, who's a great and great ally and advocate for food systems, that Wonderful. they were also hearing a need or had, had been percolating the idea of, of we need some produce processing. And um, I stepped in and said, well, you know, we could do that for you. And so they funded the study and we were looking at some, it was a, it's a, we titled it a pre-feasibility study because a feasibility study is pretty extensive and there's a lot more number crunching in it than a sociologist right. really wants to do. And so we were looking at some pretty basic questions of, A, is there excess demand for produce processing in central Kentucky, meaning do we have more demand for processing than we have existing capacity for it? And when we're talking about processing, what we're really talking about is washing, slicing and dicing, Mm -hmm. freezing, dehydrating, packaging, and packaging, sort of like the the basic vegetable processing that you might see. So if I, just just, let's break it down one one more step. If I'm a farmer and I'm growing carrots, Mm -hmm. then what are we talking about my carrots? I don't. I just want to grow them. I'll grow really good carrots, and then what? If well, I, if you can there... you can sell them at the farmers market. You cannot process them uh, and sell them as processed unless you're using a certified kitchen. No, I'm I'm just asking what this what oh. what we were studying, what we were trying to figure out about what would help me. It would it wash is, and potentially peel and some, dice. Someone might wash, peel, dice. Mm-hmm. Like the little baby mm-hmm. carrots, carrots that you into. buy at Kroger, only this would be a local, maybe a local version and not whittled down into little thumbs, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Or, and also, when we were trying to come up with the phrase, we kind of, I think maybe we stole the idea of first produce from one of, first process from one of our interview candidates, but this idea of, like, not a salsa, mm-hmm. not, right. not the a spaghetti sauce, sauce right. not, not put together with other things. Right. These mm-hmm. are ingredients that would then go into other dishes, by right. and large. Uh-huh. Um, they're ready. but they're So it might be a diced and individually quick frozen or IQF carrot mm-hmm. that would be tossed into a uh, soup. soup that would then go to a cafeteria. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so the first stage is what you looked at. Yes. Okay. And so we said, first, is there is there excess demand for the processing and what would potential markets for a source-identified um, Kentucky farm impact process product be? Meaning, not just are people using processed carrots, but what interest and demand is there for a, 
a Kentucky local. farm, a right. local processed product. And so we interviewed both supply and demand side, as well as existing processors to say, what are you growing? How is it doing? Um, and we learned what was most interesting about this study is that we went in thinking there might be some, we, people want to put in a produce processor because they think it's, this is just checking in to make sure it's needed. And we came back, the ultimate finding was to the best of our understanding, we do not currently need more first processing in the region. And that's for a number of reasons that the study breaks down. Um, number one, most surprising, we went as well as as interviewing farmers, we went to USDA census data. Mm -hmm. So instead of trying to do our own survey, we said, you know what, I'm sure the USDA has kind of figured out this farm survey. (laughs) They've done surveys. Yeah, they've done a pretty extensive job and farmers, you know, are likely to answer to them. So we just looked at what's our baseline for produce production in our region. Just so we compared, um, we pulled Kentucky's numbers for produce, meaning vegetables, fruits, berries. Um, And then we looked at our neighboring states. And that number was a real eye-opener. So it's somewhere in the study. We have a bar chart that looks at it. But up at the top, you know, you see Ohio and Indiana are around 32,000, 35,000 acres. This is just acres in produce production. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tennessee is, let's say, 31,000 acres. And then Kentucky comes in at 7,500 acres. So that first question of do we have a lot of wholesale produce production that's ready to move into a processing infrastructure? We don't have the produce. We don't have the produce. And there's a lot of historical reasons for that. And there's a lot of policy, perhaps, reasons for that. And so that was a real surprise. And for me, I was like, how have I not looked at these numbers before? They're just sitting there. But really, no one, they exist out there. We had this great graduate fellow. So part of our work is also engaging students in doing research. So he was pulling those numbers and analyzing them and brought me the chart. And I was like... Wow, you know, they yeah. don't they don't exist in that comparison. And then and when we were talking with institutional, so wholesale buyers and other value adders, so people who are making those soups for cafeterias mm-hmm. or people in cafeterias doing the purchasing, what they said was, well, we mostly buy fresh. Our customers are more interested in having a fresh product year-round than a, produ- a processed or frozen product because that's seen as better and higher quality. Right. And we would rather buy fresh than buy... Kentucky, because there's more perceived value on the part of our customers. So those were the two kind of surprising findings. Um, I think that's absolutely true. I I think the food chain is opening and and crowdsourcing right now, not crowdsourcing, but launching a campaign to open their uh, processing and teaching kitchen. But here's the difference. It's one of scale. Mm -hmm. And scale in this context makes 100% of difference. It makes all the difference. It's the reason... The real reason that um, something that I wanted to to talk to talk to you about, Lillian, which we really won't have time to talk about today, but the real reason Aramark has all these issues about food streams, et cetera, is the size of Aramark. Yes, hmm. it's not the size. Local, mid mid level to small producers can handle actually fairly large organizations, but Aramark's size and its capital streams are so large that they can't be handled. Mm -hmm. It really, it's something that I don't think consumers really understand. And I think the same thing could be true of the processing kitchens that you're, your first processing kitchens in the study. More what food chain's trying to do is increase accessibility by individual people to fresh and local food inside of a neighborhood or a a community structure and making those foods convenient to use. So it's more about 
processing, first processing for people rather than first processing for businesses. Mm -hmm. And the two things are very, very different. Absolutely. And they have different economic impacts. So we're not thinking that we're going to be a big driver of wholesale agricultural projects, but that a few farmers can begin to sell their seconds, et cetera, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. that maybe you can, it can snowball into creating more economic demand there. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I tell people that all the time. I think I'm really concerned about being able to source enough local vegetables just for our small restaurant group. And um, I think it's a huge concern for Kentucky. But maybe more can be put into cultivation, but that definitely has to happen first before we can. And at the same time, we still have distribution and processing problems and gaps. So both are true at the same time. Yeah. A wholesale operation cannot be sustained, and at the same time, there isn't enough distribution and processing involved for small producers. That's exactly, we, co- we keep coming up <laughs> against these chicken and egg problems, which is also, I would say there's also a real need for consumer education. And mm. instead of consumer, I would also almost say citizen education. Yeah. People don't understand the food system, and that's all right. I mean, it takes a while to of learn course. about things, which is why the work of this radio show and, and Roni... That's what we're yeah. trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying to help. Your newsletter How do you and even we do your restaurants, it? like, right. It's like a big invisible yeah. thing behind right. what exists behind yeah. everything. And the but, language is just, just kind yeah. of beginning to be able to speak in actual English about mm-hmm. some of this, so that people who are not trying to learn about it all at all times can go oh yeah i I see that and i I do think there's room this is where food hubs i think are incredibly valuable and where we're almost thinking maybe this is now the opportunity we've got some critical mass around state support school systems interested we've got a lot more restaurants on board than we used to that there might be a place for developing fresh markets for fresh kentucky produce sure and if we can develop that market and have consistent marketing consistent sales really develop the small wholesale, so restaurant markets and regional grocery right. stores, we can build that foundation for yes, so that yes, our producers, yes. more than anything, what the producers needed in this study was they don't need one big sale and then they never hear from you again from the year. Right. They would they need consistency it's because the kale flow, keeps coming. <laughs> right. You can't you can't just well, have all the kale just, ready at once. Yeah, and yeah. The, the whole way of farming where you sell one time and then you're out is really not successful for a lot of people. That's those beans and, and corn that, mm-hmm. that those in those 80 acres. That, yeah. that it's wonderful. Well, I could talk. I know, Rona, you feel this way. I could talk to you all day and all night, Lillian. Yes. And, and I'd still be learning Your work is so valuable yes. to our community. Thank you. We appreciate you. We appreciate you coming in. And we're going to have you back. We have to have part two and three and four and five on the show <laughs> because it's so fascinating what you're doing. And... Um, and thank you so much. Well, for I'm honored. Us. I'm really. I look up to the two of you so much. So that means a lot. Thank you. Aww. <laughs> Let's take a quick st- station break, and when we come back, Dan Wu is joining us from the Culinary Evangelist with a special announcement. Have you ever wondered what it's like to fly in space or work in the space industry? High school students, this is your opportunity to work with an astronaut for three days and compete to have your project launched into space. 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 Join us at Go for Launch Lexington, August 5th through 7th at BCTC for a truly out-of-this-world event with astronaut Frank Culbertson. To register or find out more information, visit www.goforlaunch.space. Esta parte de la programación de Radio Comunitaria Lexington es presentada usted por una beca de State Farm. State Farm ofrece seguros para vehículos, hogar y propiedad, vida y salud y servicios financieros como planes de ahorro, planificación de patrimonio, rentas vitalicias y más. 
Para obtener más información o para contactar con un agente local de State Farm, visite www.statefarm.com o llame al 855-733-7333. Cornbread, you're with us. Thank you. This is Kentucky Food Radio. Today we've been talking about food hubs and um, kind of a, we've been on the um, ethereal plane of really big brains that are understanding how our food system works. Mm-hmm. And now um, we have a new guest. We are so excited. We don't often have two guests in this way, yeah. so we're delighted to have Chef Dan Wu with us. Dan Wu, who not only has his, he has a, a television chef career behind him, but he also is one of our colleagues here at Lexington Community Radio, hosting the Culinary Evangelist Show on Wednesdays mm-hmm. at 3, and then he's so good that he puts his shows on the station website for uh-huh. for streaming. I guess <laughs> hi, Dan. How are you? We're good. You come to tell us about something really interesting um, that's happening in your world and in our world in this community. Yeah, it's a fantastic event. Uh, it's called Passport to Flavor, and it's a, uh, a fundraising benefit, fundraising event for uh, Kentucky Refugee Ministries, which, uh, for, for those who don't know, do really tremendous work here in, uh, in Lexington. What they do is when, uh, when refugees from other countries get settled into America and get sent to Lexington, Kentucky, they are the people that pick them up at the airport, that help them find an apartment, that help them, them find a job, teach them how to drive, give them like sort of work lessons and basically like how to live in America. I mean, it's a huge, huge help. Uh, and so I'll, I'll give you the idea of the germ of this idea is months and months back uh, when and I'm going to get political just for a minute here. When people, including Donald Trump, were spouting off at the mouth about uh, Syrian refugees and terrorists and all this nonsense. Uh, And I said, I, for one, would love to see some Syrian cuisine in this country and and in the city. Uh, Because my philosophy on immigration has always been like the more diversity we bring into this country, the better our food and cultural scene becomes. You know what I mean? So even from a a one track mind about food, like you want more immigrants in this country. That's what made this country so awesome. So uh, my friend Sarah Beth Brown Robbie, who saw that post and said, hey, we should do something with KRM. 
and we got together and we we put our brains together and what we thought of uh, the the idea that I kind of came up with was that your traditional fundraiser um, you you get you know, a, a catering company or a restaurant to cater a little black tie dinner, you charge X amount of money for it, people cut a check, they come, they have a nice dinner, they feel good about themselves, the checks go to whatever organization. And I said, with those kind of events, I always feel very disconnected from... I agree 100%. Right? From, yeah. from the people that you're trying to help or the organization you're trying to help. And I said, what if, because you have all these great uh, refugees coming into this city, coming into Lexington with their various culinary and cultural backgrounds that we don't have exposure to yet. What if we got them to make the food for the event? Oh, wow, that's great. So what we're doing is uh, we rented out Manchester Music Hall, and we're going to create basically like a nighttime market that you would find in another country. Um, so we're going to have uh, dancers, performances, yeah. craftspeople, art stuff, stuff for kids. But the central focus of it is we're going to bring in uh, uh, refugee home cooks from five different countries, Afghanistan, Bhutan, Burundi, Cuba, and Syria. Uh, and they're going to, with the help of uh, local restaurateurs, um, create sample sizes of dishes from their home country for people to try. It's just oh, such a, such a so, great idea. You know, what when is yeah. this? So this is next Friday. Uh, I believe it starts at 6 p.m. Uh, Friday at Manchester Music Hall on the 24th. And then we tried the best we could to pair up these home cooks with uh, restaurant tours that would be somewhat culturally similar. And because, you know, we don't have an Afghan restaurant or a Burundian restaurant right. here, we did the closest we could get. So what we ended up with, we paired up Afghanistan with uh, Sullivan University, uh, Burundi with Sav's Grill, um, Syria with Ilias and uh, Athenian Grill, um, Bhutan with uh, Cookie over at Jasmine Rice, and Cuba was the closest match we got with Brasabana, of course. Yeah. yeah. So I've been meeting with all the chefs and the home cooks all week. I'm actually between my meetings over with Sav, and then I'm going to Jasmine Rice Ooh, here you shortly. Smart, smart cookie. Yeah. I love the sound of this. This well, sounds like so smart, much fun. It's probably a Syrian cookie. It's a great way to yeah. build connections between yeah. people and yeah. show a true sense of welcome yeah. and everything. I, I want people to come to this thing. A, it's, it's not a sit-down sort of dinner, so we... We lowered the price point too, so it can be accessible to more people and Where families. Where can people find out more of the detailed information? Um, I think Facebook is a good way to go. If you look up Passport uh, to Flavor, I'll put this on or, our and we'll hot link water bread. Yeah, we, we'll put it there too. Yeah. Or look up Kentucky Refugee Ministries. We're going to bomb all of our social media with it. Um, but for me, like I like that personal connection yeah. of walking up to a booth or Meeting a tent someone. and say, what is Burundian cuisine? I have no idea. And you get to meet the home cook that made this food mm -hmm. with the help of the restaurateurs and you get to talk to them mm -hmm. and you get to have these sort of conversations and understand, oh, this is what KRM does. These are the people mm -hmm. that are yeah. being helped by KRM. I get it now. You know what I mean? Like yeah. have that real deep connection. And for me, like how do you connect with other cultures? First and foremost, always food, food. Yeah. yeah you know That's food is really the first and last thing you know about a culture and we should say i think about krm kentucky refugee ministries at lexington is a city i don't i don't know that all cities are but we're a city that formally accepts refugees mm -hmm. that are um um sent here through our governmental process of accepting refugees m most of whom have gone through just 
um, incredibly incredible difficulties yeah. Uh, yeah. before getting resettled here. So they come with a lot of need, and um, the Kentucky Refugee Ministries has a lot of need mm-hmm. also um, in order to rise to meet yeah. Um, these big families come, whole families come. Yeah. And you can get to the Kentucky Refugee Ministries website at kyrm.org slash Lexington slash. You can find out more information about the Passport to Flavor along with all the other things that the KRM does for families in need who are just settling in the United States. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, you know, f- for me, I've realized that the stuff that I, I want to get myself involved in, they always have so many different facets of positive things happening that yeah. even if I just picked one reason to do it, I would mm-hmm. do it. And one of the sort of underlying reasons for me is imagine, if you will, let's say the the home cook from Bhutan, she gets into you know our restaurant kitchen, helps produce this food for this many people, gets her food in front of all these people that aren't familiar with it. What if the germ of the idea, boop, pops in her brain and says like, oh, I could open a Bhutanese restaurant here. Yeah, or a I would go restaurant here. <laughs> for sure. You, I would be there. Can like you imagine in a that? Like, like that to me. Go so, Dan. Go Dan. So even if, even if my only motivation was like was expanding the culinary scene mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. Lexington, this would work. That might yeah, do it, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm I'm super psyched. I'm super psyched about it, as you can tell. Well, we are going to put this information on our uh, Hot Water Cornbread Facebook page, and we'll try to get the the news out. Again, Um, it's next Friday, June 24th, in the Manchester Music Hall, and it's called Passport to Flavor. Yep. Yeah, you get, uh, with your ticket, you get a little uh, passbook that's going to look like a passport. It has information in it, and then you tear off little tickets, kind of like you did at Crave. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tear off little tickets, and you trade them in for... uh, Sample, sample sizes. We want people to just try as many different things as possible. This kind of thing takes an enormous amount of organization <laughs> and work. So thank you, yeah. Dan, for working on it. It's like wrangling cats, but it's worth it. <laughs> cats from other countries. Wonderful oh, idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, should we talk a little bit about some things that are going on just in our neighborhood yes. that folks might want to yes, know about? Yes, we have a few little culinary up. calendar events to talk about. Yes. Today is the first East End Market for the Fresh Stop Chef Connection. Uh, It starts today, and it is in the. um, It's going to be from five to seven at the Community Ventures Pavilion. The Community Ventures Pavilion from five to seven. It's the East End Market. Starts today, uh, from five to seven, and that's at the corner of Third and Midland. Next week on Wednesday is the Castlewood Market. And that is also a Fresh Stop Chef connection. So you can buy all kinds of fresh vegetables. You can talk with a chef about how to prepare them. You can get cooking live cooking tips right there. I know I'm going to be doing some of these in August, and a lot of chefs from all around the city are going to be participating. Yeah, they're awesome. The Just coordinator, wonderful. the chef coordinator is Tanya Whitehouse. Um, and... Um, it's just a wonderful program. And that will be... So the Castlewood Market is next Wednesday at the New Beginnings Church on the lawn there, that's 845 Bryan Avenue from 430 to 630. Um, and then finally, uh, on our Hot Water Cornbread page, Rona is going to post the connection there for the Food Chain Generosity Launch. We've just launched, um, Food Chain is a nonprofit organization that that is in the bread box that has been an aquaponics program, but is now expanding into a processing and teaching kitchen with a grocery store to follow close behind. And so. is in the process of raising, and is actually um, 
already after just a few days on the way to raising $20,000 from all of us nice. so that it will have many, many owners uh, throughout our community and probably the world <laughs> yeah. who are interested in its particular uh, wonderful vision and will help make Bring it about. All of and these things make you happy, don't they? Do. They do. Yeah, come in here, we get happy. Week. Because just, the, I mean, the food chain uh, thing is just as Dan said about the the KRM event. There are so many ways in which it's good, you know, yes. food, yeah. family, jobs, um, skills training, kids. Yes, yes. community. Yes, um, community. Uh, dealing with food waste and food shortage. Yes. Farms, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're we're really excited about it, and we'll we'll be pushing that and hoping people just you know support it a little tiny bit, and you'll be amazed at how much more interested you'll be in their future and um, mm-hmm. and in their progress. What a fantastic show! Yeah, we, we had, had a really good time. With Dan doing <laughs> yeah. this amazing fundraiser for a fabulous cause. We had so much to talk about with Lillian, and yeah, thank you. So. I think we might be done. Time to go. Thank you, Dan. (laughs) Bye, Chris. Bye, Weeda. Bye, Rona. Bye.